Niños en el arco, la defensa es colosal González, Orlando, La Torre, Nicolás Fuentes y Chumpitas Chalemí, Frin y Cubillas y el gran Perico León Bailón y Alberto Gallardo completan Welcome back to the Peruvian Waltz podcast. I'm your host, Peter Galindo. Apologies for the absent week last week. Our schedules just did not sync up and we did not release an episode, unfortunately. But fear not because we are back. And what a time to return as well. Joining me this evening is Christopher Viscardo, who now resides in Washington, D.C. How are you, Christopher? And, and, and how is the East Coast? The East Coast and especially the city are just beautiful, beautiful places. Personally, I'm I'm just like uh, a little short on sleep. Honestly, if I had been on the West Coast, where I usually you know I am, then that game would have finished at 11 a, you know p.m. But instead, we were up till 1 a.m. you know East Coast time trying to watch the game in L.A. and it was worth it. It was totally worth it. But uh, yeah, then I had to wake up early. It was a uh, it was a little bit hard, but you know what? Anything for La Selección, you know what I'm saying? Well, luckily, Viz, we are happy to have you in the same time zone because now, like the rest of us, we can all record at the same time. Also residing on the East Coast as well is Kevin Montalvan. Kevin, how are you doing? It's good to be back. Uh, like Viz, I can say I'm a little tired from the, from the match last night, but uh, very excited with the result. As we all are, indeed. Um, so let's get right into it then. Uh, Peru beating Brazil 1-0, I'm sure as we all know by now, because we are now all insomniacs for the next couple of days. Luis Abram's first goal for La Selección on 85 minutes gave Peru their fifth victory over Brazil in all competitions. Ricardo Gareca became the first Peru coach to defeat Brazil twice in the process. And Brazil has only lost four matches in their last 50-plus games. Peru is responsible for two of those defeats, which is quite something to think about, even though one of them is a friendly, but I digress. This result, guys, was clearly a little bit unexpected. We have to say that the intensity of the game was certainly there. Peru were definitely a lot more cohesive. Um, The chemistry seemed to be there, and they had a coherent game plan that obviously very much worked. But given what happened in the first match against Ecuador, it is just proof that September friendlies can be quite patchy because it's early in the European season and players are trying to gain a rhythm. It's also been a while since the team had been together. I really struggled to kind of find a way to introduce this. Luckily, we have our listeners who always ask us some very good questions. And Heisenberg at Madden Jesus asked us, what did you think was different with Peru this time around? Very simple way to get us started. So Viz, what was different with Peru on Tuesday compared to the match on Thursday? I I think that Gareca had kind of a chance to do a little experimenting, a little trial and error during the Ecuador game. Like you said yourself, Peter, it's been a while since the Peru national team really played together. Uh, And so therefore, kind of first of all, getting the team back together, um... And also realizing that since then we had the Panamericanos, which gave us, which gave us some different options, you know, of uh, of players that could be used. Then obviously trial and error occur, and the Ecuador game uh, wasn't terrible, but you know we lost. And then 
Gareca kind of, I think, pulled a little bit of a Hail Mary and just said, you know, like, look, let's just try something new. Let's looks like, you know, people like Costa are giving us, uh, you know, a, a good run for our money. Aquino seems to be in good shape. Let's let's re reaccommodate things. And the worst that can ha- worst that can happen is like we're going to lose to Brazil, which like everybody expects already. And that. While the game was intense, I think released a lot of pressure off Gareca's shoulders, off everybody's shoulders, and they they were able to really just show their game. To me, that's probably what what made a big difference, having that chance to mess up against Ecuador, lose, and then knowing that you have no pressure to be Brazil, be willing to try something new, different players and a different tactic, and, and getting it right. I think that there was still a lot of problems with Peru uh, that we need to talk about, you know, that uh, just because we won, you, we beat Brazil doesn't mean that those problems go away. But uh, we had a serendipitous night. We, we you know, we, we did things right and we got the one goal we needed and that was it. Correct, indeed. And we will talk about some of those issues a little bit later on. Kevin, what do you think was different uh, if you have anything else to add that Viz hasn't already said? So personally, I think uh, the first thing was was the attitude with which we approached the game. Uh, some of the last couple friendlies, we've been a little bit lackluster, like a little, like we didn't want to be here, kind of some players. And I think approaching that more seriously was was the big the big change. However, Aquino, Pedro Aquino, that name, he's got to stay in the selection. I think we noticed how much. Uh, how much we, we missed him in, in the Copa America. His un, unfortunate injury kept him out. Uh, but he is a, a very, a very solid addition to our midfield and actually gave us that option of, of throwing that three-man midfield of Tapia, Aquino, Yotun, which I think everyone was pleased to see. 100% they were. As Viz said, there were obviously some things that I think need to be pointed out. First of all, just maybe running down some numbers here in terms of the comparison from the Copa America final to the game on Tuesday. Um, Brazil did win the expected goals battle over Peru 1.18 to 0.59. That doesn't include the Neres chance, which Abincula somehow, some way got in the way of and, and won that ball cleanly. Um, that looked like a certain goal. Um, now, Peru also did concede just three high-quality chances in the match, which was a, a couple chances lower than what they conceded in July. Peru allowed around the same number of expected goals in that final, but they had uh, half the amount of chances in that game as opposed to the match on Tuesday. Um, conceded the same amount of shots. They completed more passes, uh, fewer lost possessions, more defensive duels won, and more duels won than Brazil and also attempted, but that's not a surprise given that Brazil was on the front foot a bit more. But the selection for Brazil also made a bit of a difference too. No Artur meant there was basically zero creativity uh, in the central channels. Alan and Casemiro are not going to do what Artur does. And then obviously Dani Alves not playing and Fagner, who's a little more conservative playing at right back, meant less of a threat for Trauco and therefore more opportunities for him to get forward as well. And Alexandro did not have a great game at left back either. But listen, Chiche threw the kitchen sink at Peru. They managed to stay firm thanks to San Pedro and some very solid defending. They were able to grind out the win. And of course, Abraham beating Ederson to that free kick. 
perfectly executed free kick by Yotun meant that they won the game. Speaking of San Pedro, uh, Gaese guys, yet again, in another marquee match for Peru, yes, it was a friendly, but marquee opponent, made a few incredible saves. And as Viz and I were kind of saying off air, that could have been another 4-5-0 if it wasn't for him at certain points. The save on Richarlison in the first half and then the breakaway from Alan, those two saves were absolutely crucial. So if we can, just a word on his performance from Tuesday night. Kevin, we'll start with you. What can you say? San Pedro, may he always be with us. <laughs> may he always watch over our, 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 our goal. His performance was was phenomenal. He was he was everywhere he needed to be. You could you could tell that he really wanted this. Um, and then his, his center back door in front of him is is just they're working out perfectly. Even even when when Zambrano got injured and Santa Maria had to kill him in, you could tell that there's there's a certain amount of order, a certain amount of chemistry building up between our center backs. Viz, how nervous were you watching some of those shots from Brazil and how comforting was it to have our saint and our savior back there making those crucial stops? Are you kidding me? We need Galeta to play till he's 45. Like that that <laughs> that man is just that, that man is just amazing. I think that Brazil Brazil obviously exposed some issues in their defense. I I think that our center backs had a good game. That, that doesn't mean that they had a perfect game. And uh, luckily for us, Galese was there just at the right time, knew when to stay back, knew, knew when to come out. I think even the Brazilian goalie had issues coming out of his box, uh, especially at the very, very end there, for example, the, the, the play where he comes all the way out, and it looked like you know that could have easily been, been the second goal. I believe it was Jordi Reina that had that yes. ball. And in contrast, you have a Galese that knows exactly when to come out and does it well and shows his confidence to think that this is the same guy that just, what, like three months ago, not even three months ago, was, uh, you know, <laughs> defeated 5-0 by, by Brazil. You, you, you wouldn't even, you know, you, you'd think it's a different person. you think it's a yeah. different person. And I, I honestly think that Galese is top goalie in Peru right now. I mean, Caseta might give him a run for his money on that, but he's pretty good. Very good. He just needs to get out of Alianza and get to a club that I think he could really thrive at, a bigger club that he could thrive, or at least a bigger league that he could thrive at. I mean, not so much a bigger club because Alianza is a major institution, but he definitely does deserve to play at a much higher level at this point, especially the way that he's going recently. On to... The midfield, which I feel was probably the major theme of this game, because when we saw the projected 11s, the fact that Gareca was going to go with Yotun, Tapia, Aquino in the center, um, I think it spoke volumes. And it obviously contributed to the output that we saw in L.A. So, Viz, how vital were they and why were they so vital? Jeez, Luis. Well, you know, I mean, you have the game that we lose 5-0 against Brazil, even the game at the final. If there was someone that we were criticizing the most, if there were two people that we were criticizing the most was the midfield. You know, we had a Yotun and Tapia that played amazingly against Chile. But then the game before that, you know, uh, the few games before that against Brazil and the game after that against Brazil, 
we just felt like uh, they were a colander, you know, for lack of a better word. It just it just seemed like they couldn't. Yotun ran out of creativity. They weren't really defending well. And then this this strategy of kind of being a little bit more uh, mindful uh, when it comes to defense and you know and really packing that the middle. That I think that that's probably what hurt Brazil the most. Really cut their game in half. Really, you know, wasn't to me a good example of divide and conquer, you know. Uh, and in this case, I think that Brazil struggled to get past that that midfield. And uh, the the good thing is that these three players are not in really any competition. They know each other very well. They've played, you know. Sometimes we've seen Tapia Aquino. Sometimes we've seen Yotun Aquino, and and, and obviously we 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 always see Yotun uh, Tapia. But they, they know each other very well, and and obviously I think that as long as they continue to communicate with each other, then you can have a functioning line of three in the middle, right? That and I think to me what was most interesting, without without getting ahead of myself here, but when some of the other players up top also pulled back, and you found yourself with a basically a defense of five in the middle of the midfield, mm-hmm. that that was beautiful, you know, that that was perfect, and especially when you have big teams. Uh, against Brazil, that that at least is another card that Garica can add to you know to his deck. Yeah, it really helped the defensive transitions as well, which I we know Peru has really struggled with, especially in in matches against opponents like Brazil, who can just tear you apart if you're that spread open centrally. Um, Kevin, of the three midfielders, and I have a feeling I know who you're going to go with, given who you spoke about off the top, but uh, which of the three midfielders? It impressed you the most if you had to pick a standout? I have to go with Pedro Aquino. He's come back and he's come back on fire like like he was last year prior to his injuries. It, I'm, I'm glad that he and Tapia are, are so young that they, we're going to have them for a while. I, I want to say that, that Pedro Aquino was, was, was probably, for me, he was a standout in the first half. And then he was he was solid in the in the second half, but I, I feel like uh, Yotun took more uh, became more of a protagonist in the second half. I agree with that as well. I think Yotun, especially under pressure, which we didn't really see a lot of in the final, was super super tranquil whenever the Brazilian players were pushing up high and putting him under pressure. He was evading it really well. I found one thing very interesting about the way that the midfielders were deployed off the ball. Pedro Aquino was actually the most advanced of the three. And initially I'm thinking to myself, okay, that's interesting because he does tend to play a lot deeper with Peru and and with his clubs, whoever it happens to be. And then I thought to myself, well, considering Peru are playing with a bit of a high press themselves, using that dynamic front three to their advantage, Pedro Aquino is among Liga MX's best in terms of recoveries and interceptions. So if he's deployed further up the pitch, if he can press, whether it's Eder Militao or Marquinhos or Casemiro, recover possession and then get it to Costa or Flores or Ruiz Diaz, that benefits the team. And it also gets the most out of Aquino's qualities further up the pitch. And then by him doing that, you also free up Yotun to just focus on distributing and getting the ball forward progressing the ball forward and then obviously Tapia can cover in behind him as well so it just worked out really really well for all of them I'll run through the stats for each of them um because it it really needs to be stressed that they had fantastic nights all three of them maybe more so Yotun and Aquino because Tapia did have a couple of pretty 
dismal giveaways. But Yothun completed 54 of his 60 passes. He won all six of his defensive duels, three of five dribbles, four interceptions, eight recoveries. Aquino, a lot fewer passes, 15 out of 17, but uh, 11 recoveries, four interceptions, and won four out of his seven defensive duels. Uh, Tapia, 20 of 27 passing, six of nine duels, won four interceptions, seven recoveries. And I feel like because people are going to want to know how many lost possessions he had, 11, and six of them were off of just coughed up passes or, or poor passes. But certainly a solid night for all of them. We got a few questions on the midfielders after that game, and I think rightfully so from the listeners. Uh, Emmanuel Chang at MannyC underscore 894 asked, Is Cueva needed? Aquino, Tapia, Gonzalez, Yotun seemed to do his job well. And then further to that, uh, Puki for Ballon d'Or at Rodrigo UUU5. He has a lot of O's and U's in his handle. Uh, but he asked, Should La Sele go back? to playing Yotun Tapia Cueva instead of Yotun Tapia Aquino or Canchita. And then lastly, Robbie C at BNCEO asked, is having three defensive midfielders in the middle the way to go? So all sort of a similar theme, guys. But Kevin, do you think that this is the right... I'll, I'll, I'll kind of rephrase this. Do you think that the system as constituted against, let's say, superior opponents is the way to go. Dropping Cueva and putting in an Aquino or someone of that mold, is that the way to go in these kinds of matches? So, at this time, where Cueva has like zero match fitness, he has zero minutes at his club, I would say yes. yes definitely, we have to uh, play to our strengths. If, if our players are more informed in the midfield with Yotun, Tapia, Aquino, then they, they definitely provide that that strength in, in midfield to just keep us in the game. Completely agreed there. Uh, Viz, what do you think about that? Is it just more so a system, like opponent thing? You just kind of mold yourself to the opponent you're playing? Well, I, I think that soccer teams are, you know, moving, breathing organisms, right? And which means that you, you can't, as much as we would like, you know, you can only... You can't really set in stone who your starting eleven will be for forever. You you have to move the pieces around, and I think at least for now it's pretty obvious that Cuevita is not well. Cuevita is not well, so therefore, if Aquino can perform his functions or or bring something else into the team, right? Use him in small games and use him in big games. You know, use him against small opponents. Use him against big opponents. And which, you know, that that doesn't mean that I want to kick Cuevita out of the team. I just think that, if anything, he'll give Cueva a chance to, you know, get back in shape, recuperate. And hopefully then we will just have more options, you know, more players uh, that will allow us to, you know, have more more variables uh, at our disposal uh, when necessary. You know, obviously no two players have the same set of skills. So, so therefore, I can see how we would utilize the, the skills of one in one game and the skills of the other in another. Exactly. Having options is always a good thing, and Gadeka certainly has them now. 
We'll now go over to the back line, starting with the fullbacks, who I feel had their best defensive displays in a while. Um, again, to run through the numbers quickly for both of them, defensively at least, uh, Advincula won 12 of his 15 defensive duels. Three out of three of his tackles were completed. Two interceptions, eight recoveries. Miguel Trauco had 13 out of his 15 duels won. Three interceptions, 11 recoveries. And going back to what I mentioned about Fagner starting at right back for Brazil and allowing Trauco to get forward a bit more, Trauco completed 44 of 56 passes. Compare that to what happened in July against Brazil. He had 28 of 38 passes completed, and he combined very nicely with Yotun, Flores, eventually Cueva when he came in. Um, and you can see that he was really thriving, getting forward a bit more against a more conservative fullback, which I'm sure suits him. So... Just to start it off, I guess, Viz, uh, with the fullbacks, what did you make of their performance overall? Would you agree with my assessment that defensively, this was probably their best performance in a while in a Peru shirt? I don't know. With the defense in general, um, like I said, I think that we divided Brazil in two. We kind of gave him a hard time in the middle. You know, I, I think the center backs would kind of come up sometimes. At some other times, I felt like it was... Uh, the wingers that would be coming down to help. But I do feel like that the situations, the, 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 the times in which Brazil was dangerous, right, where Sangalese had to come out and save us, uh, I think it was because we we were playing a little too high. And, and that makes me wonder if there was some room of, for improvement there now. Uh, whether that should rely fully on the center backs or on the full backs. I don't know. I, I, like I said, I think everybody had a good game in general. I, I, I'm I trying to think maybe of uh, whose fault it would be, but at least my knee-jerk reaction is maybe there was some room for improvement for the full backs uh, to, to try to cover cover those those spaces uh, considering that they almost became the last last line of defense when everybody else was kind of populating that, you know, like really just packing that that midfield. I mean, I feel like they, they did pretty well in that regard, at least defensively. I mean, they also had cover from the midfielders too, which definitely helped. And I noticed that Richarlison and David Neres were constantly swapping flanks because initially they were targeting Trauco, couldn't do anything. So Richarlison switched from the right to the left, still couldn't get past that vincula. And I felt like they really thrived more so when they cut into those central areas and were able to kind of dictate the play that way. That's just what I saw. But certainly when it came to, I think, Brazil hitting Peru in transition, Trauco was the more advanced fullback of the two. Abincula was a lot more conservative in that regard. That probably put it out of whack a little bit. Plus you got Yotun pushing up and, and then the shape kind of gets out of whack. But credit to the center backs, though, they, they were very solid in, in, in covering. And of course, Gaese had to come up big a couple times as well. Um, but certainly something to work on as well. Over to the center backs, because good time to bring them up now. Carlos Zambrano and Luis Abram, to me, were excellent. Santa Maria came on the final 30 minutes or so, kind of around the same time Neymar came into the game and Brazil made all those flurry of, subst of substitutions um, and did well, I thought. Um, so... I guess before we get any deeper, Kevin, what did you think of, first of all, Sambrano and Abraham from the start, and then also Santa Maria, who came in afterwards? Sambrano and, and Abraham have really have really formed a good 
partnership in so little time. It, it's surprising. I guess he's just kind of taken him under his wing, and and they really kind of rolled with it. As far as the you know the other options at center back, we we have some decent options, and you know Galens and Santa Maria, Araujo, but the most promising we've seen so far has definitely been Zambrano and Abraham. 100%. Follow-up to that as well, because obviously Abraham scores the goal and he's the hero and everything. I, I thought quietly before that goal, he had another brilliant game, completed like at least six or seven really good progressive passes under pressure, pressure into the final third, very solid defensively, never really put a foot wrong. He's really only had one bad game as a starter, and that was the 5-0 loss to Brazil. So do, do we feel like we need to start giving Abraham more credit for his really rapid development here, both for Peru and for Belles as well? I think no one saw it coming. I'm going to be honest. Other oh, 100%. Than maybe he got, maybe got Eka, <laughs> since he's the one that started giving him chances. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He was at Cristal. Um, I don't think anyone, anyone, even even Cristal fans, I don't think really saw this happening. And, and I'm happy for him. I'm happy for, for his sudden growth. He, he definitely deserves some credit. Uh, but aside from the goal, the goal, you know, anecdotal is his first ever he should be very happy for it but putting in a solid performance keeping a clean sheet in front of brazil is always something to be proud for sure it is definitely viz this one's for you um just sticking on the center back conversation robbie c at bnceo asked us did Santa Maria make a case to be a part of future call-ups he did have a, a shaky game against ecuador but in the last 30 minutes against Brazil, I feel like he kind of made up for it. But do you think that he should continue being a part of the squads for at least the rest of the year? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, we all asked to see Santa Maria play even a few minutes in the Copa America. And then we finally got to see him play against Ecuador. And, you know, he had a shaky performance. And like you said now... He seems to have been vindicated himself from that from last time. I think that we still need to continue to give him a chance, especially because uh, the whole Araujo situation is uh, it's not good. You know, it's not good at all. And I, I know that we have some other options like Callens, but for now, I, I think that Santa Maria has done enough to continue to have him as part of the squad. Now, that, that could change next year, you know, uh, depending on how things go uh, between now and the beginning of the qualifiers. But at least for now, it, it won't hurt to keep him on uh, and kind of finally give him that chance to show himself that he didn't really have during the Copa America. I would agree with that as well. He hasn't had a great time with Atlas recently, but he also just got back into the 11. I feel like he just needs a little bit more time to really get back into the groove of things. And certainly that performance, no matter how short it was against Brazil might boost his confidence. We all know how crucial that is for center backs because you make a mistake, you're probably conceding a goal. So it's always nice to get those confidence boosts moving now to the front of the team, uh, the front three of Flores, Ruiz, and especially Gabriel Costa, I thought had some pretty good moments, but it was a little bit frustrating too, because there were times when they'd be very spread out a lot. Viz and I talked about this in the WhatsApp chat um, when the game was going on, but there was a specific question about Costa because I feel like his performances in these two games have been the big takeaway among the forwards. 
Um, Abel Gamara at Abelanda81 asked us, did Costa do enough to keep Carrillo out of the starting 11 in future games this year? Um, Kevin, do you think Costa has maybe locked down a starting spot for maybe even just the October and November friendlies? For for the upcoming friendlies, I, I have no doubt that Costa will be back. He is, he's definitely shown that he's 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 a reliable player for the selection uh, in the little amount of time. As far as starting over Carrillo, that completely depends on on Jareca. I could some of Carrillo's best matches have been against Uruguay, so that could be uh, that could be a factor for Jareca. But I, I definitely want to see him continue to get minutes in the upcoming friendlies. As would I. But also, I need a reminder, no quevedo, no party. That can never be forgotten from here on out. Um, <laughs> Viz, <laughs> because there are so many facets to me in terms of this front three, like we could talk about Costa, we could go, um, what do we think in general of the, of the front three, especially in that first half, because you and I spoke about it via WhatsApp. Um, but also the Jordi Reina substitution, I thought, changed things. Uh, Carrillo came on and, and had a decent cameo. W- what do you think about all of that? You can go in any direction you want. The, the floor is yours when it comes to the front three. Go ahead. Well, I mean, what what I said the, during the last last podcast is that I, I felt like that I felt like that our attack should be playing a little bit more compact. Uh, our attack should be playing a little bit closer to Ruidias, a little try to get as close to the box and keep Ruidias as you know uh, inside the box if, if possible. And, and I remember that you talked about it's like, well, you know, Ruidias can play outside of the box and he can he he's kind of become better at that and uh, and all of that. And then again, I think we ran into an example of where they were way too wide and uh, they were not really connecting well. I mean, I, I feel like Peru would play amazingly all the way up to, until they got, you know, close to the box, and all of a sudden I saw them kind of retreating because they weren't sure where to go or just losing the ball altogether. I think that, obviously, an issue that we've had, whether it has been Ruiz, whether it has been Jordi, is that we're just not seeing that many shots on goal. We're just not seeing that many shots at all. I, I wish I, I was just seeing more crosses. I, I wish it, they would just feed more balls and even even try. You know, I feel like at some points there was hesitancy to try. That to me is is bothersome. Like like I told told you before we were on air, before we started recording. Um, it speaks volumes that the, the the goal that gave us the victory last night was from a defender, right? I, I know that off a set piece, off a set piece, right? I mean, I know that he happens to be the one that you know stuck his neck out and you know and and hit the ball with his head into the net. You know, I mean, it, it could have been anyone, but uh, boy, <laughs> I wish it would have been Jordi. You know, <laughs> it's like <laughs> these guys play amazingly for the clubs. And somehow they gotten stuck with a with a Pizarro virus, you know. <laughs> and I don't know if we have a good antidote to that yet. Honestly, what would have happened if we hadn't won last night? If we had, you know, tied or if we had lost? I think that this would be the number one issue that we would be talking about today. Would oh, be for sure. what's going on with the forwards. 
And so that that's why, I don't know. We we need to move things around for sure. I think that Costa is is doing great. I think Costa gives us a really good option to Carrillo, to Hurtado, even you know. I I I think it's a it's great that we have kind of uh, found him. I mean, I I was doubting him because honestly, I mean, after he left for Chile, I was just like, I don't know what he's up to. And as far as I know, Colo Colo is not having no you know a, a great season. So I was I was doubtful of his ability, but obviously, you know his love for Peru came through, and uh, he gave us some r- pretty good performances. But now it's like, okay, well now let's take that, you know, and let's take what what Oreja Flores gives us, who I feel was probably the one of the only ones that took any chances yesterday too. Let's start molding them for the for the nueve del futuro, you know. We still have a few years till uh, Kevin's. Uh, nephew starts playing so until then we're going to have to do with Ridias and uh, <laughs> we need to continue to work on that yes and indeed we will I think we're going to talk more about this in a bit because certainly in the Ecuador game I think that was certainly the theme and the major takeaway was the attacking struggles but yes indeed against Brazil you can maybe excuse it a little bit they still got nine shots three on target but when you look at the bigger picture this has been quite uh, a struggle Um, So moving into that loss to Ecuador last Thursday in Harrison, New Jersey, 1-0 was the score there as well. Um, Clearly a much more disappointing result, to say the least. It was an experimental Ecuador with an interim coach versus a full-strength Peru. So losing in the manner that they did was obviously disappointing, and especially because Peru were really toothless, yet again against a very stubborn and stingy defense. So... To start this off, Kevin, why can't Peru find a way to break down stubborn opponents like this? Is there any solution to this? Without Guerrero, it, it does become more more of a challenge. Honestly, we, we've had so, so low shots on target in the last couple matches we've had. But I think that that's just the most obvious solution. You know, take shots, whether it's from range, from wherever you can, test, at least test the keeper. But other than that, I, I mean, our forwards are, are Ruidias and Reina when, when Guerrero and Farfan are not, are not there. So we, we got to see what works for them. And got to keep trying out players, see if anyone new appears. It, it, it's good for players like, like Guerrero to, to at least get a shot. Even if it, you know, it wasn't a lot of time, Derek at least got to see him for like a full week in training with the Selección, and we might see other players like like Marcos Lopez doing, you know, similar things. Exactly, Viz. Similar to what you kind of talked about, but we got a question from Heat underscore Alea at I believe it's L. It's either L or I, but B E H M zero zero one, asking what is the biggest concern? Is it inconsistent play? or lack of offensive prowess. To me, I feel like the two go hand in hand. Would you agree with that assessment? I mean, I, I don't know uh, what your definition of a consistency or inconsistency is, because I feel like both of our forwards, Jordi and Ridias, are being fairly consistent with their teams. Right. You know, And, and so therefore, I, I don't know if I want to say consistency but then i mean if you only look at Ridias with the selection then it's like yeah he's very inconsistent you know so <laughs> so i i think further to find out a little bit more but but um if you talk about lack of offensive prowess uh yeah 
maybe maybe the second maybe the second and and i think that it's partially not their fault like i said i think that they have to work as a team and i felt like when it was Rodriguez, he he felt very disconnected i don't know i think jordi was also struggling i felt like i i saw him behind a a brazilian player almost always and it's like even sometimes when it was like okay you know he needs the ball it was like wait what is he doing right between their center backs like like hugging them you know it's like uh, shouldn't he be trying to get you know get himself open you know does he think that he can just outrun them you know and uh, i think that there is some some skill there at the same time there was also a lot of times where i would say gabriel costa and it's like dude shoot the ball now you know and instead he would see, look forward, see what what he had ahead of him, and then decide. It's like, well, no, let's uh, you know, let's calm down. And he would shoot the ball back to someone, you know, like like uh, maybe Joshi, you know, and then kind of restart the play when it was like, no, this, that that was the time to attack. You know, I, I think that some more teamwork and synergy needs to be created, and 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 more communication and skill you know uh, just refining their skills when playing together uh which is something that luckily it seems like the defense has gotten down uh pretty well or a lot better than it used to so i think i think to me that's my biggest worry i feel like part of the solution could just be shoot more often um we saw even in the brazil game that their forwards we're having shots from distance. And you know what? It tested Gaese or at least had him thinking, oh my God, I need to stretch across here and make sure I got this post covered. And then you just look at some of the qualifiers that Peru played in the last cycle. A lot of their goals came from outside the box. Look at the Bolivia match, the win over Ecuador in Quito. Um, a lot of goals came from distance. So listen, have a hit. Don't be afraid to shoot on sight. And I feel like worst case scenario, the opponent gets a goal kick and you can drop back into your defensive shape and try again, right? Whereas if you hesitate to shoot, you can turn it over and get hit on the counterattack. So even just doing that, I feel, could could be a huge difference. But I've also been saying this for a while and they still don't do it, which is just maddeningly infuriating. To round up the listener questions, we'll move over to Hayaku Ju at Cruz... Ale Guineal, if Peru continues to play the way they did against Brazil, do you think we will go unbeaten for the rest of the year? And would we be able to qualify for Qatar 2022? So we are clearly on a high after what was the, well, one of the lows, let's say, after Ecuador. But Kevin, what, what, what do you think about this? If they continue to play the way they did against Brazil, c- could any of this happen? I think that. That's not uh, Gareca's priority to, to go and beat him all year. I, I think he wants to, to, you know, work out his systems, work out what new players might be useful to him, see where, where everyone is as far as match fitness, um, you know, if anyone's dropping off. Gareca, I'm looking at you. Uh, <laughs> and and that, that's his priority. That, that's his priority. I mean, I'm sure, you know, He's happy we beat Brazil, and, but I'm, you know, I don't think, you know, at the end of the day, it's a friendly, it's a friendly, you know, losing to Ecuador 1-0, losing to Brazil 1-0. I mean, winning, <laughs> beating Brazil 
uh, he'll he'll draw his conclusions from there of what worked with this guy, what didn't work, how you know if he wants to keep a four three three, it it might it might be likely that we'll we'll see that again in in the upcoming matches, especially since uh, you know it looks like Cueva is not playing too much in Brazil. Um, so that definitely will be an option going forward. I guess it shall. And on that same subject, Robbie C again asking us, does Gareca continue to experiment in the October and November matches? Who is one and kind of further to that, uh, who is one player who is not part of the pool now, or like the pool of regular call-ups now, that you think will be called up one year from now. So Viz, um, does Gadeka continue to experiment? And who do you see, if anyone, who's not a part of the current setup, getting a call up in the next 12 months? I think that the Gadeka does have some room to continue to experiment right now. I think that it would be interesting to see Pretel back in the squad. I think it would be interesting to see Marcos Lopez again. Uh, maybe give uh, i mean those are kind of like the two names that really jump out who knows how beto da silva will be doing in a month or two maybe we'll give him a chance uh especially because the, the two that we currently have are not really convincing us at the moment when it comes to forwards um i mean those those are like the usual names you know that, that we usually always talk about that are kind of in that pool of players now if you want to talk to players that are not in that in that sphere right that have not been yet called up to the national team then we can talk about you know maybe that one of the names that comes to mind weaving like we talked about yep. uh, regarding the panamericanos uh, it's like the first name that the jumps the jumps at me as someone that could uh, have a chance with the with the national team uh so to me that's those are probably my my three names of uh players that that could be tried, but then again, you know, it all depends on how things will look like in, in a month or so. And if those players will be able to prove themselves in their clubs. And if, you know, also if players that are currently in the team, uh, fall out of, fall out of grace too, you know, I mean, we, we could see, uh, <laughs> like, I think like Kevin just said, maybe Carrillo, maybe something happens and we all of a sudden don't see Carrillo anymore, you know, Six months ago, I thought I think that we all thought that you know, uh, Ramos was someone that for sure he wasn't wasn't going to get dropped, and all of a sudden, boom, Ramos is gone. Nobody has their their spot saved. Indeed, we will. Over to a couple of statistic uh, questions. The first one from Karu at Karu underscore seven. Can you guys talk about analytics with respect to the national team? When did this become commonplace? Did the previous processos of Marcarian and Chemo have access to this data? Now, when it comes to the current setup, um, there are quite a few uh, differences from previous regimes. So Gareca and his team do use uh, a very popular software for scouting, which I use, and that is Scout. Um, and he uses that basically to evaluate all the Peruvian players, um, around the world. So it helps him watch the matches, um, gets him in-depth stats and whatnot, helps him compare players in the other leagues and whatnot. So it's just a really good tool, uh, to have. And it also helps him maybe look at maybe players in the player pool that he hasn't 
yet seen in person as well. Um, they also hired a data company uh, to provide data analysis and just statistical analysis of players in Liga Uno. And for that, they have installed uh, in most stadiums uh, two HD cameras, one in each half of the pitch. And the idea is to basically register as many matches as possible. Um, they also set different variables that they use to measure the players so that they have enough information and data to perform detailed analysis on those players in Liga Uno. So the nine variables or parameters could be simple things like, okay, midfielders, how many progressive passes do you have? Um, how many passes into the final third? That sort of thing. Uh, it, it could be different for different positions. Um, Gareca also from the start of the 2015 pre-Copa America friendlies, so basically right after he took charge, began recording all the matches of the national team, which is something that was never performed before based on the multiple outlets that I looked at. Um, so he's probably the first coach to actually do that. He also does the usual GPS uh, video tracking systems as well to, again, better extract and analyze information from each player. Um, this complements the software or data analysis from the company that they hired in Liga Uno, but it also allows them to do the same thing with players abroad as well. But that would just be with the video tracking, not so much the the analysis. They would use the analysis and the data from Scout. So a lot to sort of digest there. Viz, we were talking about this before the show actually started. Listen, Peru very clearly are behind with the times. I mean, the media found it so incredible that they had team psychologists or a team psychologist to kind of help them with the mental rigors of playing for the national team. So the fact that they are using this stuff is not necessarily revolutionary, but is this helpful that they're at least kind of moving in the right direction here, that they're kind of getting with the times? Oh, oh, oh yeah, for sure. I mean, like, like I was telling you before the podcast, I thought, I thought one of the funniest things that I ever heard uh, regarding this subject was uh, a comment from Daniel Peredo, may he rest in peace, where he, he says, you know, he was close to a coach, that uh, was in Peru before Gareca, whose name he did not dare say, but uh, whose you know last name probably starts with an M and ends with a Carian. Uh, <laughs> to to be honest, you know, I mean, it was pretty obvious that, that that's who he was talking about, even though he didn't say the name. But he, but he basically told you know this mysterious coach Uruguayan uh, that uh, it's like you know everybody else is using like all of this technology and GPS and tracking the players' stats and. And looking, you know, at their at their games at home and all of that, and and this coach was just like, "What you talking about?" It's like, "Why do I need a camera? Why do I need a GPS?" When it's like, "When I got two eyes, you know, it's like <laughs> I, I I know exactly what's going on with the players. I know who's fast. I know who's slow. I know who's good. I know who's bad. You know, I'm I mean I'm I'm doing my best to try to rephrase what what it is that, that what this that this coach said, and that just shows you kind of. Uh, the mentality, you know, yep. a little bit of an old school mentality of, you know, soccer has been played like this since the, the British invented it 100 years ago. So we're going to continue to play like this. Well, the British themselves moved on a long time ago. So uh, we, we should get with the times. Um, and is it making a difference? Uh, yeah, obviously. I think the story where they pull Araujo aside and they show him his stats compared to Luis Suarez and he can't believe that he's just as good as Luis, Luis Suarez wow, you know, I think you can really make a difference uh, at the player level, at the individual level, and it can obviously make a difference 
collectively. You know, when keeping mm-hmm. track of players for the team, when keeping track of the team and of the team stats. And that's another thing too, actually. The some of the analysis that, that they do collect is accessible for the player so they can check on their own statistics as well, which I'm sure is very helpful. Much like you said with Araujo, when they said his leaping ability was among the best in the team and he could actually jump just as high, if not higher, than Suarez with no run-up leading up to it. So that obviously showed him that, hey, I can actually beat Suarez in the air and that probably gave him confidence and we all know what happened in that match in 2017 in Lima, that he, he was amazing. And no one probably really expected that. So, yes, indeed. Getting with the times and using all this modern-day technology is huge. And as a lover of analytics, I am so happy that a coach for Peru is finally utilizing it to its fullest potential. Long may it continue. Similar subject. uh, Puki for Ballon d'Or asked us, could you compare the stats of our players to other players, specifically in Europe? So, for example... Advincula to Trent Alexander-Arnold, Tapia to Fabinho or Casemiro, Pedro Aquino to N'Golo Kante, etc., etc. What I would say to that is, you can manipulate numbers to make any sort of argument you want, and that because they play in different leagues, because they play in different systems, you can skew the numbers or the numbers can sort of read a different way. So for example, Pedro Aquino, who's deployed in a more defensive role than N'Golo Kante is, um, has better interception numbers and better recovery numbers than N'Golo Kante. But he also plays in Mexico. Kante plays in the Premier League. Uh, Aquino is more so a number six. Kante can play in a double pivot or a little bit more advanced. So that just kind of goes to show you the sort of differences. And and the same thing with Alexander-Arnold and Abincula. Alexander-Arnold is far more integral to his team's buildup than, say, Advincula is on a regular basis. Um, So it really just all depends what you want to see. Um, But certainly in in the cases of, like, let's say, Aquino, or certainly someone like Miguel Araujo, could they cut it in Europe and could they play in a league like, say, Spain or Germany? Certainly they can, depending on the system and the fit and and how well they can adapt. There's no doubt about that. Um, To round out the show, guys, we'll talk a little bit about... Uh, some domestic football stories in Peru. So a couple of coaching changes that we saw over the last couple of weeks while we were on our hiatus, Um, the latest of which involves Sporting Cristal and Claudio Vivas mutually agreeing to part ways. Now, Cristal, over the last month or so, basically since the Copa America break ended, have since been knocked out by Zulia in the Sudamericana, Atletico Grau from Liga 2 knocked them out in the Copa Bicentenario on penalties. They have, I believe it's three wins, a draw, and two losses in the Clausura. They're still three points away from the leaders, but the form clearly was quite inconsistent, um, and that probably led to his departure. So what do we think of the decision? Kevin, what do you make of Vivas leaving Cristal? I personally think it's a little bit uh, unfortunate especially if, if they were just using those results since uh, I think concurrently, you know, Cristal had given up players to, to La Selección for the Copa America, players to the uh, Panamericanos. But I mean, you know, it, if, if that's the direction they, they, they like to take, I'm going to assume they have a, a plan in place for a coach that they may have actually wanted since 
Claudio Vivas was not the first choice for this year. Right. I heard I heard a rumor about Mosquera, but I I don't I don't really know if, if that's their. Yeah, we there was there have been many rumors about Mosquera, and I think rightfully so. So, this to finish this off, what happens now to the younger players on Cristal because Vivas seemed to really encourage them and give them regular minutes. We saw the likes of, for example, Martin Tavera really grow as a player, uh, Gianfranco Chavez as well. Um, I guess they just hire a coach that will promise them those, those minutes and, and to continue their development. Would that be fair to say? Uh, the thing is that I think that Cristal at this point can really just cruise into the semifinals. You know, I, I think that they are second right now out of 18 just behind Binacional, who are still surprisingly first after the insanely crazy campaign that they had the first half of the year. Cristal obviously had, just has that consistency that even with all the Vivas stuff, they're still doing pretty well. And I really doubt that they're going to be knocked out of the the you know top four, really. So they've almost got Copa Libertadores in, in the bag. You know, Copa Libertadores 2020 in the bag here at this point. I, I think that it's honestly just going to depend depend on which which coach they get. Uh, you know, I think that for Cristal, this is basically the end of the season, and they could potentially just get an interim coach. An interim coach that, for mm-hmm. example, like in years past, has been a coach that was from the youth side of the, of the club. That So, therefore, you know, you think that a youth interim coach would, therefore, prefer the youth that he helped, you know, develop. Uh, and so I, I can see how that would give him minutes. I mean, other than that, the, the other option is to go try to get a coach abroad, as is Cristal's custom in the last few years. And, you know, unless you promise him a year and a half contract, I don't know. I don't know if that's really a possibility uh, right now. Maybe they just want a fresh start here in January, which is at this mm-hmm. point around the corner. In, the, in that case, yeah, you know, you'd have to look into which coach would promise them to play the youth and all of that. Uh, but it's kind of a coin toss still, at least to me. Yeah, certainly looks that way. Because Kevin mentioned uh, Mosquera, we'll move over to the Binacional coaching situation because Javier Arce stepped down because allegedly, and this is, I believe, what he told Gol Peru, um, about a week or so ago, he didn't like the fact that certain people within the club were influencing or making certain sporting decisions that Arce himself was in charge of. So basically too many cooks in the kitchen and Arce just got fed up and left. Um, rumors are that he'll go to either Real Garcilaso, which was departed by Juan Reynoso because he took over at Puebla in Liga MX, or, which is most interesting of all, Peru's under 23s, which of course their qualifying campaign starts in January. Still kind of strange that they are still not playing in friendlies, whereas other South American nations are playing in friendlies currently with their under 23s, but that is neither here nor there. Simply put, guys, would he be a good hire for Peru's under 23s? Or do we still want to see Gareca coaching that Olympic team like we talked about after the Pan Am Games finished? Uh, Kevin, what do you think? I personally don't think Gareca is going to take over the the Preolimpico. I think if if that was on the table, he would have done so at this point, um, just to you know to have his eyes on the ball, just make sure his guys are are starting to build chemistry or anything like that. Um, Javier Arce could be an option. 
uh, could be a solid one. He he made a limited Nacional side. They, they were probably one of like the lowest payrolls in the league into a machine a machine in the Apertura. I, I did not expect them to, to perform as well as they did. I think they have the most away wins, least goal conceded. Top of the you know the table, Harry guaranteed them Copa Libertadores, so that, that's that's not bad at all for such for such a team with a with a limited budget. Definitely isn't. Um, there's what do you think? Provided Gareca is still a candidate, who would you prefer of the two? And let's say Gareca isn't a candidate, does that mean that Arce becomes the lead guy to take over that role? Well, uh, you know, I think that if you have a Camry in your parking lot and you also have a Lambo right next to it, you take the Lambo. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like Camrys are reliable, but you got the fetching Lambo, use it. You know, <laughs> so, uh, it, it at a personal level, at a personal level, give me Gareca, give me Gareca, always give me Gareca for the for the women's volleyball team, give me Gareca for the uh, Peru ice hockey team, give me Gareca oh. forever. Now, do I think that he will? He will step step on. Uh, I think that a lot of that decision actually doesn't depend on Gareca. I think a lot of it actually depends on uh, El Ciego. Uh, I think that uh, one of the reasons why Gareca is so successful is because he such, has such a good team, uh, and especially Oblitas. You know, like I say, I think Oblitas helps him uh, make a lot of those decisions. And I think Oblitas is more focused on the 2022 qualifiers than he is on getting to the Olympics. Even though I personally would like to see Peru in the Olympics again. We haven't been since 1960. It's been a little, you know, it's been quite a while. So, I, you know, if in the end Arce ends up taking over the U23s, I, I'd be happy with that. But if Gareca was a realistic option and if they were willing to consider it, by saying why not? It just gives him an extra chance to work with younger players and to you know craft a Peruvian national team of the future. I don't think it's a waste of time, honestly. I think it's actually a very interesting, uh, very interesting concept, a very interesting way of going about. In terms of who takes over at Binacional, Roberto Mosquera reportedly has an agreement to actually take over at Binacional. So. What do we think of the fit, provided that happens? And just in general, Mosquera returning to Peru. Kevin, what do you think? I think he's coming back very, very strong. He's, he's had quite some experience uh, in Bolivia with Wilstermann and, and Royal Party, and, and he's basically made them overachieve um, because they are not you know, the bigger sides in Bolivia. This could be a, a good fit for him, uh, especially since off-rip Binacional is already set to play the semifinal or directly to the final if they can keep up their, their good results. So that, that's definitely worth his time if, if they're you know giving him a long contract. Yeah, definitely. Wouldn't that be something if he came back and then won the title with them, like first go around? That would be just nuts. I, I, I would love it personally, but... Who knows if that ends up happening, and even if he takes the job. Uh, Viz, what would you think of Mosqueda if he took the job, this specific job, and also just in general returned to Peru? I think that Mosqueda coming back to Peru, I I, I would love that. Uh, Honestly, Juliaca happens to be only 
147 kilometers. I just looked this up from the Bolivia border, you know, so I mean, it's really not that far away when you think about it. It's a three hour, you know, car ride from the border to Juliaca. So, and the fact that he has experience with those high altitude teams, yeah, man, Mosquera is a perfect fit. I think that Mosquera, I would really have liked to see him go abroad, you know, and become the national coach of Bolivia. I think that would have been amazing too, but I think we need more Mosqueras uh, in 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 Peru. Uh, we need more coaches that are local uh, in the league in general. Kind of, I mean, we have Chino Rivera, who I also think is a, is a great coach and a great example for others. But uh, I really like Mosquera too, so I'd be more than happy to see him there. And I and I hope that the rumors are true, and that uh, we see him play in the league. He he could really, you know make Binacional, you know, uh, part two of the movie. And, like, honestly, like, Mosquera could come, come around. And, and, honestly, Binacional is not that far away from, from the top of the of the table either, you know. They could turn things around very quickly and find themselves being becoming uh, national champions, on the you know, at the end of the year. And at the very least, they're in the semis. So, from there, they can just kind of coast in there and – start afresh and then Mosqueda can lead them to glory. Um, so that'll do it for us this evening. Thank you again for listening. And once again, apologies for the brief absence as well. Uh, I am Peter Galindo. You can follow me at Galindo PW and you can follow the show at Peru Waltz. Viz, what is your Twitter? And the floor is yours. If you have any shout outs. <laughs> My shout out this week is for Banco Pichincha. If you're an Alianza Lima, <laughs> what I'm talking about, if you're not, like, don't worry about it too much. But Banco Pichincha, great stuff. Anyways, uh, my name is Christopher Viscardo, and you can find me at VAC underscore FC. Savage with the Alianza fan on the call right now, Viz. Well done. Kevin, what is your Twitter? And if you have a reply to what uh, Viz just dropped, go ahead and, and give it. <laughs> he left me speechless. <laughs> uh... Quite, quite a burn at the time. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I'm sorry, Kevin. <laughs> but um, my name is Kevin Monsalvan, and, and you can find me at K Monsalvan Seven. Excellent, excellent. So this is the Peruvian Waltz team, and we are signing off. Chalemi, Fring y Cubillas y el gran Perico León, Bailón y Alberto Gallardo completan la selección.